This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Condon. So, Kyle, it's just four weeks until the last day to vote, uh, a.k.a. previously known as Election Day. Uh, I want to start by asking, what do you think is affecting the electoral environment now that now that people are paying closer attention to the elections? Uh, you know, it still seems like kind of a mixed political environment out there with, uh, you know, maybe the Republicans having kind of a little bit of an edge sort of in the national environment, but but it not being, you know, particularly overwhelming. I feel like if you sort of look at a lot of the kind of key House and Senate and gubernatorial races, you know, a lot of the races we thought there were going to be, you know, toss ups in the most competitive six months ago are continuing to be, you know, you might have expected that some of these things would sort of shift more toward the Republicans over time, just given what usually happens in midterms and president being unpopular and all that. But um, it hasn't happened yet. It doesn't mean it, it won't happen. Um, but uh, uh, so it's, you know, again, it's I feel like we've been in some ways talking about a lot of the same races, but you look at like where the can the, the campaigns and the outside groups are spending money. And, um, it's a lot of the, a lot of the same, uh, this, a lot of the same places too. And so, um, you know, Republicans, I think are still favored in the house, although it's not like a completely open and shut case. And, um, you know, the Senate is Senate continues to be up for grabs. I and mean, I feel like a kind of a broken record on this, but you know, it is what it is. And we do, people are starting to vote, um, in certain States, um, Virginia is one of them, actually. Uh, North Carolina is another. Um, and the volume of that is really going to pick up because you're going to start to see more states going more heavily to early in-person voting coming up here relatively soon. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see quite the volume of mail, you know, mail-in voting that we saw in 2020, um, you know, for obvious reasons, because, um, you know, the, the pandemic restrictions are, are basically over everywhere. Um, you know, and we can sort of interpret that, but it can sometimes also be sort of a deceptive view of what's going on. So, um, but, but to your point, you know, election day is not, it's not the actual election day. It's basically the conclusion of voting that has been going on for weeks or even months before, beforehand. We started this conversation last week, but I want to pick it up again now that your analysis is out on the crystal ball. More than $6.4 billion has already been poured into television, radio, and digital media ads this election cycle, and overall spending is now projected to hit $9.7 billion by Election Day in November. Um, That far surpasses both 2018 and 2020 election cycles, according to Ad Impact. Um, While you note in your analysis that the effectiveness of ads is debated, what are voters seeing from the campaigns and outside groups in the ads? And what were your key takeaways from watching hundreds of ads? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's what you'd expect in a lot of ways. Uh, A lot of abortion on the Democratic side, not that much abortion on the Republican side. Um, You know, Democrats clearly want to talk about that more. Um, You know, a lot of talking about uh, um, uh, how Democrats are very loyal to Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi in terms of their voting records um, and also uh, Republican attacks on things like immigration and crime and that sort of thing. Um, you know, but some of, you know, there, there, there are lots of other things that are going on too, you know, sort of, uh, you know, personal scandal. Um, that's been a big focus in the Georgia Senate race, for instance, and um, kind of on both sides, I'd say the focus is more on Herschel Walker and basically whether he's, you know, he's qualified to be an office or not. Um, you know, one, one thing's coming up, coming up later this week is the, the debate between Herschel Walker and Democrat Raphael Warnock, which, you know, debates, 
there to quite debatable uh, in terms of uh, in terms of impact on the races, but uh, I, I'd assume this one will get a lot of attention. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of uh, a, a lot of sort of familiar themes uh, in the in the paid advertisement. And look, you know, the the there are all sorts of things in a campaign that the campaigns themselves cannot really control. The message that they try to put out there is something that they very much can control, though. And so what they actually pay to put on TV and to put in digital ads or whatever, um, you know, tells you what they think is really going to be going to be effective or at least potentially effective. You know, I kind of wonder if you saw any differences between the parties. It seems to me that there's more of a unifying message for the Republican Party um, versus Democrats, which tends to be a bigger tent and there's a lot more issues. Did you see that come through in the ads where, you know, Democrats may be focusing on a wider range of issues um, or not have as much a coordinated message versus Republicans? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Also, you know, you've got a lot of Democrats who are tr- basically trying to run from the president. And so as they do that, they want to talk about their own accomplishments, which um, can vary. You know, there's um, you see some ads mentioning uh um, you know, Medicare, uh, uh, you know, capping the price of insulin, that's something that you hear on the Democratic side. Um, you know, various pieces of Democratic, you know, the, the, of bills that Democrats passed, um, certain local things that Democrats may have intervened on. And I'd say the, the Republican messaging is a lot more just kind of about like sort of making the election more of like a referendum and sort of, you know, just tying Democrats to, to Biden. And of course, you know, you do see biographical positive ads for, um, you know, for, for various candidates. You can also sort of tell when it's like a Republican running in a Democratic district or a Democrat running in more of a Republican district or state um, because they I mean, you know, candidates in general elections aren't really talking about their party label, but I think they really kind of tamp it down and make it sort of like a almost like a soft focus sort of, you know, sort of sort of message to really try to, you know, put, put, push the point that they're not necessarily associated with their national party and that they're more of like an independent sort of person. So, you know, you'll see that with like, there's like a number of competitive races in Oregon, which is a Democratic leading state um, with some Republicans um, running out there. Um, and, you know, d- uh, Democrats, particularly in kind of uh kind of white working class places that have maybe trended Republican, um, you know, definitely trying to, to, to sort of downplay their own, um, their own party affiliation. Um, but, uh, um, you know, but, but a big, just a big theme is, and this is true in, you know, in any midterm or many midterms anyway, is you've got, you know, members of the president's party really trying to talk about how they're, they're different. Um, I'd say Abigail Spanberger in Virginia is a good example of just her sort of message. Um, she's running in, Northern Virginia slash Central Virginia based district now. Her district has sort of moved up from from Richmond, and you know she's emphasizing uh, uh, you know bipartisanship and and, uh, and that sort of thing. She just had an ad up, in fact, with Denver Riggleman, former one term congressperson whose district includes Charlottesville. He lost uh, in a convention to a more conservative candidate, current Congressman Bob Good, last. Um, last cycle. And, you know, Riggleman is in this ad for, for Spanberger. And so, you know, and she's using, you know, Riggleman as a, um, as a Republican, you know, validator for her. Um, And, you know, it's not, it's not that common to see, uh, um, you know, other politicians sort of showing up in these ads. Um, We have seen Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia appear. Um, He's done a lot of rallies for candidates across the country. And he's also appeared in some advertising. Um, one in particular is for uh, Jen Kiggins, uh, Republican run against L- Elaine Luria um, in the um, very swingy Hampton Roads of Virginia 2 uh, uh, district. 
Yeah, and Riggleman also, of course, is working with the January 6th committee as well. Yeah, and, and has become, uh, you know, w- one of these many Republican candidates who or, or who, who you sort of think of as being sort of a mainstream Republican, and then they sort of end up on the outs with the party, and then all of a sudden they're, you know, they're, they're kind of closer to the Democrats almost, at least in terms of, you know, how they feel about January 6th any, anyway. Um, so it's just interesting to watch that transition because like, you know, when Riggleman was running in 2018, like, I don't think he was like some sort of like, you know, super conservative candidate. Um, but he was, I mean, he was a sort of a mainstream Republican, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, just things, things end up changing quite a lot over a you know a short amount of time in our politics today. You know, with Spamberger too, you know, she's always had this very competitive district. And I think, was it the 2018 election, sort of the post, the postmortem on that, there was, you know, the, the infamous call where she sort of got really angry <laughs> with the rest of the party about, you know, sort of moving more leftward. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that was, I was, I think it was after 2020 cause she, uh, you know, Democrats ended up not doing so great in the house when they kept the majority, but didn't do as well as they thought. And she was, uh, you know, very critical of, of how the party had kind of allowed itself in her view to sort of get pinned down on some unpopular kind of left-wing positions. I, I, I defund the police is probably one of them, even though a lot of Democrats try to keep that at arm's length. The Republicans I think have done a decent job of sort of, you know, pinning that on, on, uh, on, on the Democrats, particularly, um, where they've had sort of like video of candidates talking about that. Um, uh, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, Democrat running up there for the Senate race is, is a good example who, of someone who's, uh, you know, own past clips have been sort of u- used against him. But, but yeah, I mean, and, you know, and look for the, for the, for, for Spanberger, who I think is one of the, you know, swing district sort of less liberal members of, of Congress, you know, if there's some sort of big wave against the Democratic Party writ large, it's not the real left wing people who pay the price. It's people like her because she's in the competitive districts. I mean, her her district's actually better for her than it used to be, but it's still um, it's like, a, you know, a couple of points more Democratic than the nation as a whole. So it's, you know, it's right there for the taking potentially for, for Republicans in a, in a good environment as, as this year may be. So I want to switch gears a little bit um, and ask you about something we haven't really talked about yet, um, and that is... Uh, women <laughs> um, and and what what the, you know we've talked a lot about the Dobbs decision and the role that that might play, um, but we haven't really talked about uh, women candidates. And earlier this year, you know, a lot of news headlines proclaimed that this might be the year for women candidates. Um, that doesn't seem to be panning out. However, um, only twenty seven percent of candidates who ran in primaries for Senate, House, or Governor this election cycle were women. And according to data for the Center for Women in Politics at Rutgers University, among the candidates who advanced to the general election, women made up just 43% of Democratic nominees and just 20% of Republican nominees. Um, What is your outlook for the possibilities for women candidates this cycle, especially given that incumbents are disproportionately men and incumbents almost always win re-election? You know, my sense of the of the research on women in politics and, and Carrie, you may have some thoughts on this, too, but it's basically that like it's not like women perform worse as candidates or in terms of, you know, w- winning elections or whatnot. It's it's often just that women are less likely to run. I mean, is that your sense of it, too? 
Well, they have bigger barriers <laughs> um, in yeah. terms of, you know, getting past the primaries. Um, and there, you know, there's also some lopsidedness, which is coming out in the data for this year in terms of support. Um, you know, Democrats are, as a party, are more likely to support and, and run women candidates um, than the Republican Party. But we're also at the same time seeing the emergence, you know, and, and part of that is because of the outside groups surrounding the parties um, uh, that, that you know, can train, recruit, and support female, women candidates. So the Democrats have had EMILY's List for a long time, and it's a pretty well-functioning organization. Um, you know, the Republicans now have, I think there's three really strong groups um, uh, on the Republican side now. And so the Republicans are kind of catching up. Yeah. And, and you know, you do have, um, you know, one of the things that re- Republicans talked about after 2020 was that, you know, they did do better than, than, than most expected, including myself in the House. And, you know, one of the things they highlighted was that, you know, to the extent they did well in places, a lot of the candidates who did do well were basically not generic white men. You know, it was either, you know, women candidates or women of color or people with military backgrounds or, you know, those sorts of those sorts of things. So you think about some of the new members like Young Kim and uh, Michelle Steele out in California, um, uh, Maria Elvira Salazar down in Florida, although she, you know, she she ended up beating a, 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 a Democratic woman, Donna Shalala. Um, and, and even, you know, in this cycle, you know, one of the um, a, a special election victor, Mayor Flores, running down in te- South Texas, you know, conservative uh, um, uh, L- Latino woman. Um, you know, she's she's someone who's gotten more of, more of a platform. So certainly, I think there's a, a desire amongst uh, Republican leaders to you know to highlight again diverse candidates. It just you know it just it's taken time to get these folks in the um, in the pipeline. You know, you do have a number of the most competitive House races this year. Um, do feature two, you know, two women candidates competing against one another. Um, Susie Lee, the Democrat, and April Becker out in um, Nevada's third district is, is one. Um, in Virginia, Abigail Spanberger's opponent is Yesley Vega. Um, so, you know, you and, and, and there are, there are others um, uh, others across the country, but um, you know, I think it's fair to say that that you know the the representation of uh, you know women in Congress has improved a lot over the years. But, you know, ideally, you know, you'd, you'd probably like the the demographics to sort of more broadly reflect the nation. And you could say that about certainly about about uh, about gender. You could say that about, um, uh, you know, racial diversity. You know, frankly, you could say it about other things, about, you know, employers and, and uh, um, you know, educational backgrounds or whatever. I mean, it's still, you know, heavily tilted toward, you know. Um, lawyers toward rich people, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about the d- diversity there, like you could argue that that Congress is lacking in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I mean, certainly the number of um, the number of members of Congress that come from science backgrounds, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, I mean, that's I another, that's another great example. Into that. And then, you know, there's a huge problem with socioeconomic diversity, of course, as you've, you've mentioned. So, so that is a huge problem and is sort of reflected in, in the policy outcomes that we see. Um, you know, you mentioned we'll have to do, I think we'll need to dedicate a whole episode on, um, candidates from other, you know, traditionally minoritized backgrounds. Um, but Bernard Fraga has done some really great work on this. And we actually just assigned some of his um, research to students in in our class uh, last week. And, um, you know, it, you know, they actually show that Republicans are, are, 
doing more than Democrats in supporting um, uh, traditionally minoritized uh, or candidates from traditionally minoritized backgrounds, um, at least in the general election. Um, but so far this year, I think what they have found is, you know, across all fronts for both parties, it's about the same. Um, and, and, and neither party is doing, you know, neither party has, <laughs> um, a significant percentage of their candidates, uh, from that are Latina or Asian American, um, uh, or, or even, even black. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like, Come a long way, but got a long way to go, I think. All right. So coming up in the crystal ball this week, Lou Jacobson is going to have a contribution about ballot initiatives. Um, This year for the 2022 elections, 137 statewide ballot measures um, are certified for the ballot in 37 states. Um, I think the the key issues um, of topic are abortion. Um, there's the 2022 has the most abortion related ballot measures on record that I've seen. Um, uh, there's also measures um, to legalize marijuana for recreational abuse that are on the ballot um, in five states. Um, there's a number of voting related policies. So voters in seven states are going to decide on ballot measures to change voting related policies. Um, and then there's voters in four states uh, are going to decide legislative proposals for changing citizen-initiated ballot measures um, processes this year. Um, And then finally, as of this month, there are 20 state constitutions that have language permitting enslavement or servitude as criminal punishments or debt payments. Um, Voters in five of those states will decide in November on repealing that language. Um, Can you give us a preview about how Lou Jacobson is approaching ballot initiatives and and what he might talk about in this week's crystal ball. Yeah, you know, one thing that comes up here, and you just mentioned it, is that a lot of states do have basically kind of like ancient stuff on the books. And I think this has come out real prominently in the abortion debate because you've got like Michigan has a, an abortion law going back to, I think, 1931. I think Wisconsin and Arizona have ones that go back to the 1800s. And it's just like, you know, when Roe v. Wade happened, those those laws became inoperative, but they still existed. Um, and uh, you, you see that with uh, with with some some of the involuntary servitude things you, you talk about. Um, and so there have been sort of efforts over the years to sort of clean some of this stuff up. Um, and also like in you know Michigan, I'd say Michigan's abortion issue is probably to me the, the most sort of probably the most watched and most important of all these issues. Again, different people have different feelings about this. And you know, you mentioned the amount of money that's spent in the can in the campaign. You know, one big big just source of money that that it comes in for um, for spending is like out in California. There are always a lot of ballot issues, and there's often a lot of money spent on those. And so, you know, you think about oh, well, it's like billions of dollars, and it's not just the candidates. It's 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 the you know the the statewide issues and stuff, which can often attract a lot of money because, you know, in a state like California, which by itself, I don't remember the specific number, but I think if California was a country, it would be like the you know, the sixth largest economy in the whole world or something, you know, something like that. Um, You know, any law, legal change out there could have wide ranging 
um, uh, consequences for just, you know, for, for, for certain kinds of industries and whatnot. So um, there could be a lot of money poured into these, but yeah, you, you know, I think you did a good job of going over some of the big topics, but Lou will, um, you know, he separates it into, uh, you know, different categories and we don't touch on all these issues, but, but he touches on quite a lot of them and, you know, abortion, um, election related law, uh, marijuana, um, you know, marijuana is one that's interesting because um, just like with same-sex marriage, um, you know, public opinion has become much, much, much more supportive of marijuana decriminalization and legalization over time. Uh, again, just like just like the public became much more supportive of same-sex marriage between, you know, since since like the 90s and now, you know, if we were talking in 2004, one of the big ballot issue projects that year was states that um, – um, that outlaw, you know, they were outlawing same sex marriage, even though same sex marriage wasn't even legal in those places. But, um, and we, you know, we've come really a long way on that issue in terms of, you know, acceptance of same sex marriage. And of course the U S Supreme court, uh, you know, mandated it for the, for the, for the whole country. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, those are, those are some of the things that come up, but I, I think I'm thinking, you know, marijuana is probably a, one that's going to be popular going into the future because um, you even have some states that you think of as being conservative, like Arkansas has a marijuana measure on the ballot this year that um, there's a poll on it that showed it at 60%. Now, polling on ballot issues can sometimes, uh, you know, overstate the yes vote. Um, so that's something worth keeping in mind as well. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but again, you know, you, you can, you, you do sometimes see results in these sorts of ballot issues that, uh, maybe cut against what you think, what you think of what the, the partisanship or ideology of state might be. And, you know, also, um, one last thing is that, um, while a lot of states do have the ability, you know, have the ability for ballot issues that, you know, to get on, um, a number of states don't, or it's, you know, just the legislature can do it. Like in Virginia, it's just, the legislature, which, which can put things on. Um, I think of the referendum process or the initiative process as sort of a good way to kind of get around the legislature on certain things. Um, but not every state has it, but and I would suspect too, that in, in states where it's possible to do so, you'll probably see more and more, um, abortion related measures coming up. Like I think Ohio is a good candidate for that because Ohio has a fairly conservative Republican government, um, and that which is probably going to continue, but I suspect that if there was some sort of uh, abortion rights issue that that uh, um, was reasonably well funded and, and reasonably written, I, my my suspicion is that it would pass, and um, and that it would be more um, certainly less conservative than the than the uh, what the legislature has has passed in that state. So we're going to do something new this week. We have listener questions. Listeners, please feel free to to tweet at us or send us a message at goodpolitics at virginia.edu if you have a question for a future episode. Um, but Kyle, this first question comes from Syncopated Politics on Twitter, um, who asks, um, uh, they're interested in a dark horse issue you think isn't being given the coverage it should. It could be either national or regional. Um. It's a good question. You know, I mentioned last week that, or I mentioned in the piece I wrote last week that um, the the Joe Biden's loan, student loan forgiveness proposal um, hadn't really popped up in much of any advertising that I'd seen. Subsequently, after I wrote that, I heard from some people who said they've seen a lot of it on like YouTube and like Hulu ads and that sort of thing. And it may be that you know I was looking at sort of things that were on broadcast TV or. Um, you know, select digital or whatever, but it may, maybe that issue actually is out there more than I sort of thought. Um, but again, it's hard to get sort of a, 
kind of a global view of what's going on um, with, with, with the ads. I mean, I could imagine it being something that, you know, targeted in the right way would either be um, something that, you know, <laughs> maybe someone who benefits from the um, loan forgiveness would like, or maybe someone who, um, you know, paid off their loans and then, you know, wasn't able to benefit from this. If, if uh, uh, maybe they feel like that, that they, you know, that, 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 that they got the sort of short end of the stick on this. So, um, you know, I, I sort of downplayed it. And again, it, it's not, it's not really been out there a whole lot in terms of like big broadcast media, but um, maybe there's more going on b- b- uh, below the surface here than I realize. Elections are going to come out, come down to who turns out, right? Um, and I think some of the polls, some recent polls that I've been looking at show that there's not a lot of interest among young people for voting this election. You know, it's been trending upward the last couple elections, 2016, even more so in 2018 um, uh, versus, for example, 2014, where we had historically low young voter turnout um, and historically low voter turnout nationally. Um, you know, it, it trended up in 2016, 2018, 2020. And now there's kind of this open-ended question about, you know, whether or not Gen Z and young voters are going to come out. Um, you know, there was an NPR Marist poll and I think a, a, a separate Washington Post ABC poll um, that just shows that there's not a, a great deal of interest among young people um, or, or at least a commitment to voting. Um, and so, you know, that just kind of taken with the fact that, uh, the student loan forgiveness might not be getting as much play as, you know, two pieces of evidence, I guess. Um, but just something that I'm thinking about, especially at an institution of higher education where, you know, we want students to become active participants in democracy. Yeah. You know, one other thing that comes to mind, which is frankly, a really difficult topic, but it has come up a lot in one race and not much in other races. And that is um, um, uh, transgender participation in sports, in youth sports, which again, I think is a, it's a very, you know, difficult and easy to basically to demagogue kind of is, issue. But um, in the Kansas governor's race, you've got a Democratic incumbent in Kansas, which is a, you know, certainly a center-right sort of state. Um, and there's been a lot of focus on that particular issue there. How it moves the race, I don't really know. Um, you know, the, the the one other time I can remember this issue coming up was in the 2016 North Carolina governor's race. The so-called bathroom bill probably contributed to the very narrow defeat of the Republican governor there. So in that state, it seems like the Democrats may have benefited from how that issue was perceived. Um, how it is working out in Kansas, again, I, I, I don't quite know and whether it is important elsewhere. Um, you know, the other thing too, is that while it, it's a, it's a tricky issue, it's also one that affects so few people also. Um, but again, is an easy thing to, you know, it's certainly sort of like culture war, red, red meat. Um, so anyway, that, that was another thing that, that came to mind. And again, it's a, it's a, it, it, it is, it, it's difficult. Um, but it has been prominent at least in that one race and, you know, maybe it, maybe it, it matters in some other places too. I don't know. Well, I think that is also one where there's a common theme with with that issue, with issues around um, race that are really playing out in a lot of local school boards. And we see a lot of mobilization and outside money coming in at the local level um, and some mobili- mobilization around 
um, quote unquote, Christian values and family values that are, you know, that gives it an umbrella to a, a, a wide range of issues. So it might be harder to disentangle, you know, just a single issue when when we see one particular party that might be uniting these issues around an umbrella of Christ, of family values or, or Christian values. Uh, we have one other question before we go from a listener. Um, Ender Elections on Twitter asks, I've seen that the crystal ball and other outlets have Ohio Senate at lean Republican, but I struggle with what to think of the Ohio Senate race because of the big polling error in the last few elections. How much can we trust the polls there and how can we know that this race is even that close? I mean, the truth is we don't know that it's very close. I think that um, Republicans anywhere are behaving as though it's close because um, Senate Leadership Fund, one of the big, probably the biggest outside Senate funding group that's uh, you know, tied to um, Mitch, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, you know, they're spending a ton of money there in part because Tim Ryan, the Democratic candidate there, has done so much better of a job of fundraising for himself than J.D. Vance, the Republican, has done. You know, we've held that race as leans Republican in, in the last couple of months, um, primarily because we just think that the polling probably is understating the Republicans a little bit in that state. And, you know, it has trended more um, Republican in recent years. And this is an example of how, I guess, we try to add, you know, some value to to our ratings. They're not just reflection of the polls. It's like a reflection of other things. Um, But, you know, you also, you know, some some years the, um, you know, the the polls will, you know, understate the Democrats or or something like that. And again, I don't that's not my expectation in in Ohio, but, um, uh, you know, it, it is it is possible. I mean, I think at this point. You'd probably expect Vance to win a fairly close and competitive um, race out there, which is why we have it leans Republican. You know, we have North Carolina, Wisconsin in leans Republican too, and you know those races are are both really closely contested as well. Um, you know, but we're trying to, um, you know, if we if we think that one side has an edge, we're gonna we're gonna try to reflect that in our ratings. Um, but uh, you know, the it, it, it also goes to show too that um, you know Democrats, I think, are you know, largely on a defensive, at least in the House, but the Senate's a little more balanced. And, you know, there are places where Democrats are, are pushing Republicans, even in places you might not expect, like Ohio. But, um, you know, to the to the question, like, if if Vance ended up winning like 10 points or something, and we all said, oh, well, the polls were just wrong again. And it wasn't just like the public polls, but, you know, whatever data the Republicans are, are working off too, maybe it's is, isn't quite right either. Um, so again, like, like, I, I'm, I'm, perfectly open to that idea. And it's somewhat baked into the rating that we have, because if you, if you just went strictly on the numbers that we had publicly available, you might say that the race is basically tied. Yeah. And a good reminder that your model does not just rely on polls. It relies on other measures as well too. So. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of, it's one of the benefits of how we do our race ratings in that it's, you know, it's, it's more qualitative than quantitative in that we do take a lot of numbers into account, but it's ultimately you know, our decision as to what we want to rate things. Um, and, and look, you know, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect or something like that, but, um, I do like having sort of the more of a latitude to not have to just sort of follow the polls wherever they lead us because, you know, sometimes it's right. And sometimes it's not. So I say this a lot, like, I don't want to like dump on the pollsters because I really value the information they provide. And, and, you know, certainly at particular issue polling, like, um, you know, the, what, uh, um, um, what they tell us about, you know, like, like pretty obvious trends, like I mentioned earlier, like, you know, same sex marriage and marijuana legalization, like 
you can see it's pretty obvious that like the public today is much more supportive of those things than they were 20 years ago. And that's not, you know, that's like pretty clear just, just based on the trends. Um, but, uh, um, you know, election to election, you know, expecting the polls to be perfect, particularly in some of these Senate races end up being like really, really close anyway. Um, you know, they're not, they're not going to be perfect. And, you know, we're not going to be perfect either, but, uh, um, you know, we just try to assess the, the numbers and the history the best that we can. Well, Kyle, thank you as always. Thanks, Kara. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.